Greetings, one and all, and welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast, sponsored by the William Wood Foundation. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and I welcome you back here again on this 8th of November, 2022. It was 80 years ago this very day that Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of French North Africa, was launched. This was the first time that the Allies really, in a huge way, are taking the fight to the Axis foe. It was an unprecedentedly under, it was an unprecedentedly epic undertaking for the Allies, but it also could well be described as, quote, risky, rushed, and unready, as Vincent O'Hara, author of the celebrated book on Operation Torch, mentions in our cover story in the current issue of Naval History Magazine, just released. Hopefully you've got your copy and uh, you've, you're already plowing through it. And today we're going to talk about uh, the Operation Torch in honor of its 80th anniversary. And I am glad to welcome back to the podcast, Vince O'Hara. Vince, welcome. Eric, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here on this on this day. 80 years ago, um, the war changed. And I think that it's appropriate to um, give some of the credit to Operation Torch that it really, it really does deserve as far as its impact and its, its um, just the scope of the operation and what it meant to the Allies in World War II. In many ways, it feels like a, a preview, precursor to the uh, Normandy invasion that would follow um, a few years later, a couple years later, in terms of like getting the Allies together, learning how to operate together, or learning the hard way. The learning the only way that you can really learn in wartime, because you know the, the trick of it is the other people are trying to mess you up all the time, and sometimes they're very successful at it. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Operation Torch, it was the first of the series of massive amphibious operations that did bring the war directly to the Axis powers. And as such, obviously, there were many issues that the Allies needed to work out. And they, they did it successfully. So in that respect, Torch did make Normandy possible. It also, um, I would imagine on the home front, it felt kind of good. You know, we're kind of finally striking back. Uh, well, you know, it's kind of funny. I asked my mother today. I talk to her every day. She's 91 years old. So she was uh, 11 years old when Operation Torch happened. I said, Mom, do you remember Operation Torch? She kind of goes, no, I don't. And I think that's kind of symbolic of, of where Operation Torch stands in the historiography and the popular memory of, of the nation. Hmm. She does remember Normandy. I said, well, what about Normandy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when they invaded France. So, so um you think it was overshadowed in the public eye by the events unfolding in the Pacific War? Or? Well, Torch, Torch was the same time as Guadalcanal. So the battles of Guadalcanal were being fought that very month. There was a lot of, of, of um, security and censorship still operating on current operations. So people, people knew something was happening. I think at the time, um, Torch probably received more attention, but that attention you know, people are people are fickle in their attention, and that attention didn't last um, particularly long because, in the public eye, greater events happened, and and the pace of the pace of victory, if you will, really picked up after after um, November 1942. After that, it was pretty much uh, unbroken success. So I, I think that um, somehow or the other, the memory of Torch kind of slipped away. You know, people people remember Sicily more than Torch, and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they remember all the stuff that followed in its wake, but not it. Um, yes. Well, we remember it in this current issue uh, in fine fashion with your two back-to-back -back articles covering uh, first the uh, landings in Morocco and then 
subsequently the race for Tunisia uh, and the the Axis powers are um, determined to get there before us as well. But first, let's start with the launching of this thing and uh, uh, all that was involved in the uh, epic logistics and whatnot of getting uh, a force to the shores of North Africa and what then ensued. It sounds to me like we were a little bit lucky in some of this from your article. I started off with a little story about a Colonel Randall um, going down the cargo netting into the into the landing craft that was you know going like this up and down and you know uh, um, a fifty year old man kind of seems young at this point in my life but you know at the time he was, he was one of the older guys <laughs> they were calling him Grandpa that day <laughs> they were calling him Gramps and uh, you know going down with his map case and his his um, his carbine and, and um, his reaction was, boy, when he finally made it to the boat, I should have practiced that. And this tells you that the uh, colonel of, a, of an infantry uh, regiment who's landing at Safi in Morocco, he didn't even participate in a single practice landing. And he's leading his troops ashore. And, you know, as they're, as they're going on their landing craft towards the dark beach, they can't see anything, all the lights are out. It's, it's a five-mile run. So it's quite, quite a ways at um, 10, 12 knots. And he's thinking that the coxswain is going in the wrong direction. He goes, you know, veer more to the left, veer more to the left. And the coxswain goes, no, sir, you have to trust your compass. And he trusted the compass, but he he was not the uh, only colonel in the operation to override a young coxswain and say, land me somewhere else, hmm. much to their own regret. I mean, I, I talked about the landings that took place around the town of Fidolia and, and, they were supposed to come ashore in a really tight one mile wide package in the event it was 30 miles wide. I mean, without oh. layers, you know, 10 miles one way, 20 miles Man. the other way. Crazy. Yeah. Um, it's, there was um, a sense that we, I, don't, I guess you could say rushed into this thing with not the requisite amount of uh, training and drills and practice for what was going to ensue. Uh, that comes clear a, a number of places in your story. Uh, and the landings is one of them. Um, you you point out that had the weather gone in a worse direction for us, it would have just been a boondoggle. And, uh, well, we you know, it's there. it's funny. I made a point in the article that I was I was invited to Algeria five years ago for the 75th anniversary celebrations, and I participated. It was, it was a great experience. But we had a, we had a wreath laying that was scheduled for the beach in one of the landing zones. I, there's a picture of it in the um, in the um, magazine article. That's the picture, and. As we were driving in our heavily escorted motorcade to the beach site, which was about an hour away, it was raining and storming and lightning was coming down and, and the guys were on their telephones trying to rearrange another another venue for the ceremony because a lot of um, very important people were going to be showing up for that. And they, they, they found some sort of beachfront restaurant and took it over and managed to hold the event in, in, indoors. I was very impressed by the logistical um, capabilities of the uh, military attache in Algeria. And my, my thought is I was standing there watching all the lightning and everything saying, if, you know, if this had happened in November of 1942, it would have been, it would have been a fiasco. It, it would have been, it would have been crazy because as you saw in that picture, they couldn't even land on a beach without losing landing craft, even on a, on a perfectly calm beach. You can see a couple, couple craft stranded. And by the end of the day uh, in Morocco, the Allies had lost approximately two-thirds of their landing craft. Mm. Now, they secured a, a small port the first day, and that's fortunate. 
But you can imagine what subsequent resupply and replenishment would be like with all your landing craft um, stranded on the beach with holes in them or, or whatever. So the Americans were fortunate in that aspect as well, uh, that they, if they had been resisted more firmly or if there had not been such a quick armistice uh, ceasefire, uh, by the third or the fourth day, they would be wondering where the ammunition was. So another aspect of the operation that's really not talked about that much. I believe uh, Vince has been frozen out. Here we go. Oh, did you did you catch that answer or not? Uh, after ceasefire, uh, things went blank for a moment. All I was saying that they were lucky the ceasefire took place as soon as it did because given the losses in landing craft, they would have been looking for ammunition after two or three days. Mm. Man, oh, man. Uh, <coughs> for a lost landing craft. Um, yeah, that, that bespeaks a, a deficiency in training. Well, there was really no time to train. The operation was factor here too, right? I mean, I'm sorry, time factor which fed this sort of sense that they were rushing into this thing. Well, they were doing it much um, later than Churchill wanted. He wanted the operation to go ahead in early October. Mm -hmm. But when you consider that the decision wasn't even reached until late July, July 24th, I think, and the orders were not even cut until early September. where is the time to practice? You, you're busy getting the um, the troops together. You're busy trying to get the assets together. And there were some limited training exercises held in Chesapeake Bay in the month leading up to the action, but that was only for certain ships. And some ships didn't even get a chance to practice at all. So I'm talking about landing assault missiles and landing craft. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was very, very, very limited training. Well, um, so the landings could have been a real fiasco, but uh, the weather gods shone on the Allies um, during that operation. Um, Once we're over there, uh, I believe this is the largest battle in the Atlantic Theater, naval battle in the Atlantic Theater, or the naval battle of uh, Casablanca, correct? Naval battle of Casablanca. I call it the largest air, land, and sea battle that was held in the Atlantic in World War II because you had battleships on both sides. You had aircraft on both sides. You had submarines on the French side. You had uh, heavy cruisers, light cruisers, and um, destroyers and minesweepers on the U.S. side, and, and uh, an assortment of French destroyers and a cruiser on the other side. So, yeah, there's a lot of ships involved. It was a very long action. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite trivia facts is that, as far as I know, it was the only occasion in World War II when a landing actually underway, when the landing craft were actually heading to the beach, came under fire from enemy surface forces. So the Japanese never did that. You know, the Germans never did that. But the French did that against the Americans. Um, it was also possibly, for all you trivia fans out there, and people measure stuff like this, it was possibly the longest um, gunfire hit obtained in World War II. Right, right. Yeah, it looks like Massachusetts hit a French destroyer at the range of 28,000 yards going by going by um, the track charts produced by each, you know, each side, respectively. And it could be could be 1,000 yards less, maybe. It could even be a little bit further. But generally, war spites hit on, on um, Italian battleships at the Battle of Calabria in July 1940 is given that credit at 26,000 yards, or maybe when Sharnhorst hit the Glorious at 26,000 yards. 
But I think the record belongs to our USS Massachusetts hitting the French at 28,000 yards. That's a good thing right here. Now, this is Massachusetts' baptism, correct? It's kind of amazing when you consider that um, the vast majority of the men had never participated in action. Most of them were, were straight out of, out of um, naval training centers. A uh, good portion of the officers had never been to sea before. Uh, the fact that her fire control radars blitzed out after the first salvo, and that those vacuum tube, vacuum tube technology does have its limitations, especially when you're subjecting them to the shock of a 16-inch rifle. That'll do it. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, yeah, she was, she was going under under um, visual fire control, and I think it's kind of amazing that she was able to do that personally. I think it's pretty impressive. It's very uh, impressive. Samuel Elliott Morrison, and I'm paraphrasing here, described the Battle of Casablanca as sort of an old-school uh, battle wagon slugfest where they're just pounding each other and all this stuff's going on. And uh, the, the French battleship Jean Bart was uh, at anchor the whole time. And she, she was still engaged in the fight, but she just got pummeled. I mean, here she is afterwards. This, this is the Massachusetts. And um, uh, what else contributed to that um, snarled deck on uh, the Jean Bart? It was the Massachusetts guns, but also there were... There were SP, SPDs were dropping, dropping right. um, ordnance on her. And a lot of that damage was actually inflicted two days afterwards when um, USS Augusta on, on 10 August was... was um, Close offshore, the Americans thought that that uh, Jean Bart was was totally disabled, but the French had repaired that that turret. It was only a question of being able to train. Mm -hmm. That was the problem. She was jammed, and they greeted Massachusetts with um, some very near fifteen-inch salvos, which caught the attention of um, Admiral Hewitt, amongst others. Splashed them all with yellow yellow water from the dye package that that um, Jean Bart used in her shells. And, Mass and Augustus got away as fast as she could, but uh, Jean Bart chased her out with a couple of 15-inch salvos. After that, the um, the um, carrier planes came in and did a proper job on the ship, made sure she was out of action. Yeah, well, she brought her on herself on that one. Hey, you know, you got you got to do what you got to do, and I, I can't blame her. You, the French knew who they were fighting by that point, but you you've got to kind of admire the French the French attitude towards life. They they were fighting for France and. It didn't matter who their enemies were. If, if um, they're firing on us, we're firing back. Right. Yeah, they were in a real sticky situation, the, the, the Vichy French there. Um, and th there's some sort of uh, diplomatic maneuvering that goes on as well to assure that they're going to um, capitulate in a way we don't have to keep pounding their assets. Or Yeah, there was, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on. In fact, the diplomatic battle was probably bigger than the military battle in some respects. Uh, we we had infiltrated a lot of um, agents, if you will, from the the um, prototype of our intelligence service, the, the grandfather of the CIA. They were they were there as, as uh, commercial agents and whatnot. And we had contacted um, a lot of the French officers and said, you know, and you know, a lot of the French were not really very happy about cooperating with um, with uh, Germany. Even that was the armistice terms. They 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 were very anti-German. But again, as a military professional, it's your obligation to obey the the dictates of your government, even if you don't particularly happen to agree with that government. And I think that the French officers and military in North Africa were professional, if there were nothing else. 
But we even went as far as sending the um, second in command of the entire operation to Fran to Africa, came, came ashore in a kayak from a submarine and met with uh, French officers at, at a farmhouse. And um, you know, that's how that's how serious we were about trying to to um, swing the political um, swing the politics in our direction. And, and in some respects, we succeeded at Algeria, particularly the port of Algeria. The fighting there was not as intense. We captured Admiral or Admiral Darlin was captured by uh, resistance fighters early on. And even though he was liberated before dawn, liberated, released from custody before dawn. Uh, he could see that the American landings were, were serious. They were real. And so that gave him the, um, the encouragement to come to a quick agreement and to eventually throw the lot of the French in with the allies. So we only had to fight for two days. And I think that's just as good. And I think that's one of the reasons why the operation ended up being as successful as it was. I mean, I make the point in, in, in the book, I don't think I make it in the article that, um, some of the operations were, some of the landings were really uh, resisted quite quite strongly at Port Laote. Uh, French African soldiers made counterattacks and they drove all the way to the beach. They they were they were on the beach itself um, after one counterattack. So, you know, things didn't go all our way, and you know, there were moments there, were, there of, was uh, more pushback like that in the landings. You know, well, you know, it's it's something people just don't even know about is, is kind of kind of. Um, which makes it so interesting to me. There's more going on there than people appreciate. It wasn't just, you know, showing up, coming ashore, and putting on the laurel leaves. It was much, much, much more than that. Right. Well, once we had Algeria in our pocket, the race was on for Tunisia, and this is where things get a little sticky for the Allied effort. Correct. This is the second article Vince has in the current issue, um, and they make a great back-to-back. -back when you read them, folks, make sure you do. Because it's really one long continuous saga, actually. But let's talk about what happens in this. Uh, our forces are trying to get there before the the Axis forces do, and it literally is kind of a race uh, to get there first. It's it's a race that's built upon bad assumptions, I think, bad assumptions and a lack of of imaginative responsibility. It, the thing about Tunisia. Is that it fell into a crack between the two the two British naval commands. You had the Mediterranean fleet, which was undertaking Operation Torch, and that was commanded by Admiral um, ABC Cunningham, and then you had the the Levant fleet or the the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, which was under uh, Admiral Harwood of uh, the Battle of the River Platte fame, mm -hmm. and Tunisia was right along their 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 um, their command, the, the, the border between their two command zones. So the island of Malta, for example, was was under Harwood's command. Uh, Cunningham was perhaps too preoccupied with the French and Italian fleets. He kept his powerful fourth force H, which included a lot of um, modern battleships. Basically, he kept them sailing far to the west in order to impress the French and Italians to make sure they stayed in port, which they were going to do in any case. As on the east, Malta really couldn't mount any attacks against um, against Tunisia because they thought that Tripoli was much more important. You got to remember that at this point, there were still 
German and Italian forces in Egypt. Yes, they were retreating from El Alamein, but they were still in Egypt. And there was a big concern that, that the push to the West by the Egyptian army, by the uh, Eighth Army out of Egypt, would continue and not get stalled as it had been stalled in 1941 and in 1942 after offenses where the Germans held the line and then came back and, and uh, counterattacked into Egypt. So there was that concern going on. And, and they were spending most of their assets trying to attack Tripoli, which was far to the, to the east of uh, Tunisia. So that was going on. You had the, the Americans and the British planners thinking that it would take <clears throat> the Axis about six weeks, six to 10 weeks to build up one division in Tunisia. And so they figured there was plenty of time. I think it's kind of amazing that they discounted the energy of the Axis, the partners in this case. I mean, we, we know that the Germans from Norway, for example, or from, from Battle of the Bulge or from even the attack on France in 1940 were certainly capable of tremendous energy in surprising the Allies. They did it here again. And it took about two weeks for the um, British Navy to realize that, that um, Axis ships were sailing peacefully to Tunisia and landing troops and supplies with very little interference. I, I explained in the article that there were some Allied submarines in the area, but you know it's hard for a submarine to do much in waters that are so heavily mined against convoys that have air support. You know, they really needed to do a lot more than what they did. It took them two weeks to um, to uh, realize, A, that they had a problem, and then another week after that to really finally do something about it by actually destroying a convoy with a surface force of cruisers and destroyers. That, that's what was required. But by the time that happened, uh, the Axis were already assuring strength, assuring enough strength to make sure that they were able to hold on, even though the... Um, Allied forces, the British and American forces, did drive to within, uh, I think it was 12 miles of Tunis at one point before they were pushed back in a counterattack. But my point is, uh, of the 24, I can't remember the exact number of, of uh, ships that made it to, to Tunisia before they were before they were um, under intense attack. My, my, my thesis is if a couple of those ships had been destroyed at sea, the margin of, of um, victory for the Axis, the margin of, of um, the margin by which the Allies failed to gain Tunisia in those those days in November was so fine, and 12 miles isn't much, that a couple sinkings might have made made all the difference in the world, and that would have saved a six month campaign. That's worth mm -hmm. saying. It was a close run thing, but you can't win them all, and the fighting would go on, as you say. Um, I believe there are some lessons to be learned in the the perils of inter-Allied <coughs> command from. Um, this effort in uh, uh, Tunisia. Um, maybe you could mention some of those. It's one of, the, it's one of the areas where the Allies were able to overcome service affiliations and national affiliations and actually cooperate effectively uh, in a major in major operation. You know, giving giving um, an American general ultimate authority over over um, British battleships, for example, you don't, you don't see that happening very much in the history of warfare. Or giving a British admiral command over American task, task forces, you don't, you don't see that very often in the history of warfare. And I think the Americans and the British did this <clears throat> big time at Tunisia, or Tunisia in, in uh, Operation Torch. They were rewarded with a success, successful operation. They established a template and they were able to take that template forward 
and apply it to other operations like the landings at Sicily, like the landings near Dragoon in southern France, and ultimately the landings at um, Normandy. And each one of those cases was, was successful. We, we think now that there's nothing easier than putting an army ashore and, and marching on to victory. But in fact, that is the hardest of all military operations. And the fact that the Allies succeeded repeatedly at doing that is something which deserves more attention, more respect than I think that it does. It's not, it's not a matter of course. It's not a given. You know, it's, it's, it's in some respects, it's, it's unprecedented. And that was one of the that was one of the tremendous accomplishments that the Allies, by which the Allies were able to um, win in World War II, and I think it, a lot of it started in Operation Torch, when they were doing these things together and trying their own, you know, trying their different different uh, techniques and methods of doing things, and finding out that hey, you know, we have things to learn from the British, and the British had things to learn from the Americans. That was even more surprising. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, the way that we learned as we went in the thick of it all during World War II is always one of my recurring favorite themes of that war. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the mistakes being made early on, it's like, you don't just like throw, throw in the towel, you learn from them and you fix them and keep it's, getting it you go. I, I, I'm on your team there, Eric. It's one of the things that really fascinates me and it fascinates me more and more and more as, as time goes forward in my, and I keep reading about this stuff. It's, it's, um, you can't get discouraged when you're fighting a war. You can't get you can't get um, you can't throw in the towel just because you lose a battle or two. You got to learn from that stuff. And the, and the people who are able to learn, you know, apply what I call the intellectual honesty to see where where our mistakes were. You know, how can we improve? We can listen to the advice of our friends, which is perhaps harder than learning from our enemies, and put all that together. I, I, the, the, the the techniques that the American Navy, the U.S. Navy used to improve its performance, the, the battle experience reports, the, the intense scrutiny of actions, the fact that we insisted that officers hold responsibility for their actions more than other nations I could name. I mean, if you want me to get into details, I can tell you some really scary stories about your recurrent failures you're kept in command. And the Americans didn't really do too much of that, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see. So I, I, I agree with you completely. That is one of the fascinating aspects of World War II, which I really enjoy following up on. And the fact that uh, we um, sort of interchange command, you know, uh, services mixed in the various commands of one side or the other, that's such a sea change from um, the American approach in World War One, where we never technically joined the alliance. Um, the French and British officers, all these doughboys are showing up from the United States, you know, and uh, they want to just plug them into their uh, the gap in their own lines under their commanders. And uh, the U.S. command is like, that's simply not going to happen. That is not going to happen. They're flying. They're going to uh, fight under our flag and under their own commanders. Um, but in this war uh, with the navies, they were able to find ways to do it in the um, necessities of the moment. And that's probably a pretty good lesson. I think it's an excellent lesson. I, I, right now, I'm reading about um, I'm reading about some of the first operations in World War II in the North Sea. You know, the invasion of Norway, which was, by the way, was the very first instance where we had a multi multi carrier task force operating off of an enemy shore in support of an amphibious landing. The the British counter landings around Trondheim in, in um, April 1940. And you compare that to the performance of the carriers off torch, or if you really want to get you know high level, you compare that to the U.S. fast carriers in the Pacific, 
and it's like you're starting from you know baby steps baby steps doesn't even describe it it's you know they were crawling and what they could do they were putting you know a couple dozen bi-wing bi-wing bombers over over a beachhead and over the course of against against ground aircraft it was just you know slaughter basically and, and kind of pathetic and you take that to the point where torch they received effective air support and you take that to the Pacific in 1945, where they were they were um, able to um, assert air superiority with carrier aircraft over Tokyo itself. I mean, what a, what a progress! And mm -hmm. and you know, Torch is kind of like a, a road mark in that in that in that a um, that um, progress. But I think it's a very important road mark and one that's worth um, looking at. You know, and I, and I, I like looking at you know the very first amphibious landings and comparing those to Torch. And you know, it's, it's all it's all a learning process. Mm -hmm. You know, Normandy did not happen by accident. Right, right. A lot of a lot of uh, learning and trial and error went into the success of that and these earlier operations. You mentioned yeah. the the, uh, the naval operations in uh, Norway in the early part of the war. That's something I've wanted to see more of in uh, the magazine. That's a fascinating naval chapter of World War II. It gets a little overshadowed because it's so early, you know. Well, that would make a. I mean, the operations of the British carriers um, between April twenty fourth and April twenty eighth off the coast of Norway would make a fascinating article. Well, you know. we'll talk after this, won't we? <laughs> okay. Well, we can talk. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and um, you saw it here, folks. A story idea was born. Yeah, story idea is very eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I lost track of what I was. My uh, sorry, I didn't was, but... interrupt you. <laughs> it's okay. going to do business there for a minute. Yeah. Well, but I, 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 um, I, I, th I think, I think there's a lot of a lot of things in Torch that, that if you if you look at it as part of a progress, part of you know comparing it to the early days, to the the first major operation, to the um, to the final results in in the Pacific in 1945, it's it's all part of the same story. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know returning to your original point, the fact that the army and the navy were able to cooperate so effectively is one aspect. But the fact that they were able to cooperate with the British army and navy as well is 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 even more spectacular. And, and you know, reading about the Germans and 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 how they they couldn't even, I mean, the way their air force and navy cooperated uh, was 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 um, you don't win wars like that. You don't win wars when your biggest enemy is your is your fellow service and uh, right. i'm sorry they were all all were jealous of uh their fears attention and favors and uh no love lost there between the wehrmacht and the kriegsmarine for sure but no they're rivals for budget dollars so right right yes some things never change well and japanese were, were worse in some respects so oh yeah that's true no. it's all very interesting i could talk to you all day about this well, it's a secret weapon of the Allies. It's it's you know one of the, one of the things that people don't talk about that the Allies did that the Axis powers didn't do, and yeah, we had more we had more money, and yeah, we had more resources, and yeah, we had more population, but as you know, any any passing familiarity with the history of warfare will tell you, you know, resources and population, and all that stuff doesn't doesn't always give you victory. Sometimes it's the um, it's the better, more directed, more focused force. And um, the moral of the story being the more coordinated force, too. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife always tells me that communications is the basic function of society. And I think communications is also the basic, the basic uh, talent that militaries need to co cultivate and, and um, get really good at. I mean, you could, you could write 
the history of World War II from the perspective of failed communications and make a really good good book out of it, I suspect. Sounds fascinating. Well, um, thank you for celebrating the 80th anniversary of the launching of Operation Torch with this, Vincent. And um, I uh, commend your articles to all our readers. If you haven't uh, delved into them yet, um, we're getting some great feedback on them. And it's always great to have you in the magazine, Vince. Always an honor. Well, always my always my pleasure, Eric. I, I enjoy um, the platform that you provide to authors like me, and and I probably appreciate even more the 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 information that comes out of that platform. The fact that that it's it's good reading every every time every issue that comes out, and it you know teaches me things I don't know. And so, thank you for um, editing an excellent publication. Well, God bless you for that. Uh, I think I'll end on up right there. That's as good as hey. <laughs> the top. You heard it from the guest, folks. Um, unsolicited comment, and uh, we're glad to have it. Thank you very much, Vince, for being with us. Look forward to having you on here again. Oh, Eric, thank you much. Appreciate um, it. I guess that's it for us today, folks. Um, thank you for joining us for another edition of the Naval History Podcast presented by Proceedings in the U.S. Naval Institute. And we look forward to seeing you again here very soon. Until then, I wish you fair seas and following seas and fair winds and following seas. Until then, bon voyage.